Father, how grateful we are that uh, Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we ask that tonight you would enable us to understand what we need to, uh, to be able to be confident of uh, the fact that you've revealed yourself in your Word and that we have the right books of the Bible. And uh, we dedicate ourselves in this evening to you, in Jesus' name. Well, welcome. Uh, this is uh, the second part of our uh, series on which Bible, which Jesus. Part two is about the Old Testament canon. And uh, people have already been asking me uh, what this picture is. I, I took this picture myself. This is uh, taken from the church of the called Dominus Levit, the, the Lord wept. It's on the, it's on the uh, slopes of uh, Mount of Olives. And uh, it, as you descend towards Jerusalem, there's this beautiful view from the church. And this is uh, reportedly where Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, hence Dominus Levit, the Lord wept. And um, I took this picture looking out the, the window of the, of the church, and I deliberately put the cross in front of the Dome of the Rock there in the background. Um, I'd seen someone else take a picture very similar to this and thought, you know, I, I really need to. I, I really need to get that shot when I'm in that church. So uh, uh, there it is. So uh, the dome of the rock there, that's that's situated on the Temple Mount, uh, in the spot where the the old uh, Temple uh, of Solomon and then uh, Herod's Temple uh, were situated. Uh, <clears throat> one day that mosque, that uh, dome of the rock, will be removed, and uh, there will be uh, another temple there. One day, uh, uh, when Jesus returns, uh, that by the way, uh, just so you know, that's not a mosque. That's a chapel. There, the 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 mosque on the Temple Mount is the Al Aqsa Mosque. It's nearby. A very dumpy looking building, in my in my opinion. But um, at any rate, so this is the that's the chapel back there, and uh, one day it will be gone. Um, but uh, the Lord Jesus Himself will take care of that. Anyhow, here's the cross overshadowing the the the, uh, the dome. Well, uh, <clears throat> last week we talked about uh, how the concept of a canon of scripture, that is, a group of of books that is authoritative for our belief and practice, and is also one that's set off by divine authority. That idea comes actually out of the idea of covenant. We talked about this uh, last week, how when God makes a, a relationship with people, he, uh, he sets forth the, the terms on which that relationship is to happen. And uh, as part of that, he sets forth uh, how um, people are to relate to him, as well as how those how the, the, uh, the terms of that relationship are to be guarded, hence a set of documents that should not be added to or subtracted from. And uh, <clears throat> tonight I'm going to show you uh, where we get the Old Testament canon from. And uh, I thought uh, I should start with uh, a picture of the tabernacle there. You didn't know they had uh, actual photographs of the tabernacle, did you? Uh, this this is a life size replica of the tabernacle uh, in the in the Judean desert, um, um, very close to uh, 
uh, an Egyptian copper mine. Uh, but uh, it's an amazing uh, experience to see that uh, situated where it is and to see just how small the, the tabernacle, tabernacle actually was. Uh, there's a group that does uh, tabernacle in the States. Um, I forget what it's called. Um, it's, it's like a half-size replica. Uh, they usually put it in the parking lot of a Baptist church or something, and, and you can go in and see it. But uh, this one was actually life-size. Um, on the right side is a picture of the Isaiah scroll that was found at the uh, Dead Sea. Well, I need to start, though, uh, as we start talking about, do we have the right books in the Old Testament? What I really need to start with, though, is a word of encouragement. What Jesus said is this. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So Jesus himself uh, uh, authenticates the, the Old Testament canon, but I just wanted to start with this. The concept is this. God wants us to know his will. And he's more interested in us knowing his will than we are interested in knowing his will. Isn't that interesting? But uh, here's a promise from Jesus himself. If, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching. Meaning, <clears throat> I think we can rest assured that God wouldn't just leave us in the dark in terms of the extent of the canon, which books we should read and which books we should reject, because God is interested in us knowing him and knowing his will. And it's, it's in his interest as well as ours, to know what's there. So uh, we can take this as a promise that uh, if we are willing to do his will, we'll know the extent of the canon as well as whether (coughs) Jesus' teaching comes from from him or from God. Well, let me start with uh, the English Bible's Old Testament. And uh, you've opened the table of contents to your Bible often enough. Uh, to have seen that uh, uh, it runs from Genesis to Malachi. Of course, the order of the books comes from the uh, Greek Old Testament, which I'll talk about a little bit later on uh, in our talk this evening. But here's how it's, re- here's how it's organized in your English uh, Bible. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Five books of law, 12 books of history, that's the five and the 12, then five books of poetry, then five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets. So five, 12, five, five, 12. That's easy easy enough to work your way through. The challenge for seminary students is, uh, once they learn this in their English Bible courses, then I get them in Hebrew and they don't know where any of their books are in their in their Hebrew Bible because the Hebrew Bible puts them in, in a different uh, in a different order. Uh, for the most part, now we start with the Hebrew Bible, uh, <clears throat> the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, uh, or in Hebrew on the right side, Torah, Navi'im, and uh, the third division is Ketuvim or Writings. Uh, so the law, the Torah, is Genesis through Deuteronomy. So at least there, we, we're uh, the English Bible and the Hebrew Bible are, are in uh, in sync. Once we get to the prophets and the writings, though, things start to go a little bit uh, uh, different on us because the Hebrew Bible uh, puts uh, books like, for instance, Daniel 
which we consider one of the prophets, goes in the writings section. Still the same set of books. Uh, so we take this Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, the first initials P, N, and K, and if we uh, put them horizontally like this, uh, and then add some vowels, you always have to add vowels when it comes to uh, Hebrew. Tanakh is the resultant word. So often you will find people talking about the Hebrew Bible as the Tanakh. I don't know how often you might have heard that expression, uh, but here it is. Law, prophets, and writings. Now, uh, of course, Moses wrote the Torah, and that was, uh, of course, the very first set of books that got recognized as canon. And then uh, later, as time progresses, we find the prophets and the writings. So if I put it uh, uh, this way, if I put the uh, books up like this, we find law, the first five books, and then in the center, prophets, and on the right side, the writings. Now, <clears throat> what you're going to hear in today's media, in the modern, the, the PBS, the History Channel, ABC, whatever it is, they're going to say, uh, people are going to make claims like this. They'll say, there was no canon of the Old Testament until uh, well into the first or second century A.D., and uh, that's demonstrably false, but it's the it's the uh, it's the line that you will hear from just about every uh, religion scholar, every Jesus special, every special on the Old Testament, anything you see in the media about the Bible. And uh, here's how they can say that, or at least they can make the claim. That is the evidence that we have of of an actual list of books like the one I'm showing you, the, li the actual lists of books that we find actually come later. They're in the, they're in the uh, first century A.D. But just because we don't have a list doesn't mean a canon didn't exist. In other words, what, you're, what you will hear from the, from the modern media is really an argument from silence. What they'll say is, we don't have anybody who says, here's the list of books. So therefore, a canon must not have existed. You say, well, wait, wait, let's, let's just test the logic of that. You're telling me that it, just because we can't find a list of books, that, that means there wasn't a set of books that was considered canonical. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, because we just can't know. Okay, so, so, the, so the whole premise on which modern doubt about an Old Testament canon is based is an argument from silence. Uh, and I think that's a, it's very important to point that out because what, you will, what they will often do in these documentaries is they'll make claims like this and you aren't ready to, to say anything contrary to that because you, you haven't thought through these issues. And they'll say, well, there wasn't any lists. We can't find any lists. Uh, so they must not have decided that there was a canon until later. And uh, <clears throat> you have to put those kinds of facts. I mean, there is, the reality is we don't have a list. There's no, you know, no one's dug up a list from 1500 BC that says, here's the canon of scripture. Okay? Well, now, tell me what else they've dug up from 1500 BC. 
The list is pretty short. And the scroll, you're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's from, that's from about the first century B.C. So, you know, you're about, you know, 1,200 to 1,400 years off there. Yeah, okay. So uh, the point is nothing survives that long, okay? The stuff, they, the, the stuff they find from 2,000 B.C. and 3,000 B.C. aren't literary remains, typically speaking. And sometimes if they find it, it's, it's, it's a fragment of a stone or a, some kind of monument that somebody has put up. You know, something like the Rosetta Stone. You've heard of the Rosetta Stone. Uh, so, so what you're looking at, or, or, or what we are trying to deal with here, is that when somebody says, we don't have a list of the Old Testament books until the first century A.D., you say, well, yeah, there's a lot of things we don't have until the first century A.D. So that's really not an argument. Actually, I can show you how the, the Old Testament canon actually dates much earlier than that, and I'll show you, show you why. We can, we can look into the, the evidence here. Okay, but now, you uh, have memorized, perhaps, that there are 39 books of the Old Testament. Okay, so if you hang on to that number, 39. But uh, <clears throat> depending on how you count these books, and by books we mean what you, what you might put under one cover, what might fit on say, 32 feet of papyrus, for instance, um, is different. And so, depending on how you count these and how you group them, uh, sometimes, for instance, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel are considered one book. First and Second Kings, one book. Uh, all these prophets from Hosea through Malachi considered one book. It's called the Twelve because they've got pretty short books. There are some of these that are you know, one chapter long. Okay. Uh, and then if you look over here on the right side on the, on, in the writings column, of course the Psalms is a pretty long book, 150 Psalms. Uh, but when you get to Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther, sometimes those are grouped together under one book. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes Ezra and Nehemiah are grouped together, often uh, First and Second Chronicles grouped together. So in the lists that, that, or the numbers that I'm going to mention later from ancient authors, sometimes we're going to see the number 22, and sometimes we're going to see the number 24. No one has a 39-book canon. Uh, <clears throat> even, the, even the ones we find in the 4th century A.D. Uh, say there are 27 books in the Old Testament. So... The contents are the same, but the way you count what's a book is different. All right, so uh, in terms of the composition of the Old Testament, we start with Moses and end with Nehemiah, basically speaking. It's about a thousand-year period. <clears throat> now, exactly how many authors there were, we don't know because uh, we don't know, for instance, who wrote First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Okay, we have our suspicions, okay? Uh, but we don't know how many people were involved in the composition of the Psalms, for instance. Okay, it's not just, da you know, there's, there's a big chunk of the Psalms are attributed to David, uh, some to the sons of Korah, others to the sons of Asaph. Uh, there's even one by Moses in the Psalter, Psalm 90. Uh, <clears throat> so in terms of Bible trivia, you really can't say how many authors exactly there were. I wish we could. 
but if you took the Bible as a whole, there'd be more than 40 authors if we could start counting. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but the Old Testament composed over about a thousand-year period, ending with Nehemiah. Now, we have to know something about Israelite history. So I'm going to throw a few dates at you, a few selected dates, because these are important to our understanding of, of where the canon discussion goes and when it's happening. Okay, so remember that we're counting downwards as we move towards Jesus' birth and upwards as we move uh, uh, from Jesus' birth forward. Uh, and so uh, we can start with the Exodus in about 1440. BC. These are all very, uh, uh, very round dates. In other words, we, we could have a we could have a couple of years on on either side here. Uh, <clears throat> but the Exodus took place in 1440 BC, April of 1446, if you want to be really precise. Okay. By the way, this this kind of little sidebar here. That's also disputed by modern media. A lot of them will put it about 200 years later. Um, but maybe, maybe that's another theory. <laughs> I hate to commit myself to anything more. But anyways, uh, uh, I, but I think dating it late is a misreading of the archaeological evidence. Uh, but the exile in 586 B.C., there's actually more than one wave of exile. It starts in 597, uh, uh, 605 B.C., when Daniel and his friends are taken into captivity. But the, the real end of the, the waves of exile is 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces uh, took Jerusalem and burned Solomon's temple, destroyed Solomon's temple. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, an, another uh, key date in Israelite history uh, is uh, Nehemiah's uh, rebuilding of the temple uh, wall, the temple complex, the, and the... Uh, uh, well, Ezra's rebuilding the temple, and then Nehemiah's rebuilding of the of the city wall around 400 BC. It's a little before that, but about 400 BC. Now I'm going to bring that back up in just a moment. But now uh, there are some other dates I've listed here. One of them is the name Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC. Now here's what's significant about that date. Now uh, uh, after the return, after the, the return of the exiles in the 400s B.C., about the tail end of the century B.C., about another century later than that, a man named Alexander the Great came on the scene. He was from Macedon, the northern part of Greece. Aristotle was his, uh, his tutor. You may know who Alexander the Great was. Conquered the, uh, the whole ancient world, the, uh, the entire extent from, from Greece uh, uh, in the west, all, all the way over to the Indus River in, in the east, was under Alexander's control. He died uh, uh, young and left his, uh, his empire in the control of his generals. And uh, they all kind of stood around his deathbed and they said, who do, you, who do you want to give your empire to? And he said, to the strongest. And naturally, every man standing there said, of course he meant me. And uh, then, you know, the, the, the whole the history from uh, 323 B.C. Uh, down until the Romans took over in, uh, in about 63 B.C. was the story of the different parts, the different remnants of the Greek Empire fighting over control of various places, and especially Israel, because Israel stands between Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's this neat little land bridge there, and if you want to go fight Egypt, 
Well, you've got to go through Israel. So Antiochus Epiphanes was one of these guys who tried to impose Greek culture and Greek religion on Israel, and Israel would have none of it. And uh, they rose up and uh, <clears throat> uh, for a very brief time had uh, independent rule, about a century or so. And it's that period of time that's known for what we call Hanukkah. When they rededicated, Hanukkah is the, uh, is the Aramaic word for dedication or rededication of the temple. And that whole thing that, uh, that gets celebrated in the modern period with, a, with lighting menorah and so on, all that comes out of that period of time. So imagine Fourth of July and Thanksgiving and about just about every major U.S. holiday all kind of wrapped into one. That's Hanukkah for the, for the Jewish people uh, of the Hellenistic period of the, about the second century B.C. Okay, now, the reason that's important uh, will become apparent in just a moment when we talk about uh, the, the, uh, the books of Maccabees. That revolt was called the Maccabean Revolt, and I'll mention that in just a second. But let me come back to this, uh, this flow forward here. The, the second temple was finally destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And uh, <clears throat> then the, the final Roman destruction of Israel took place uh, uh, nearly a century later in A.D. 135, the so-called Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, this is finally when the Romans say, okay, everybody out of the pool. They, they, they drove the Jews from Israel. They drove them from the Temple Mount. They said, you're never allowed back up there. We will not allow you even to call this place Israel any longer. We're going to call it Palestine from now on. And so A.D. 135 on into the second century A.D. marks uh, uh, basically the end of Israel as they knew it. <clears throat> Not as God knows it, mind you, but uh, as, as Israel knew Israel, 135 is the end of that. And that's, that's, where, the, uh, that's where some of the documents from the second century that I'm going to talk about in a moment come from is that period of time when Israel is struggling, like they did in the exile, with maintaining Israelite identity. What do you do now that the temple is gone, now that we can't offer sacrifices? What do, what do all those things in the law mean to us now? That's the sort of thing that they're wrestling with. Okay, let me come back to Antiochus Epiphanes and the, and the, and the time of the Jewish revolt there. There's a, uh, there's a very decided sense in the documents that come from this era. This is 1 Maccabees 9.27. says this, There was great distress in Israel. This is when Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to, to impose Greek religious ideas and sacrifice on them. He says, Such as not had been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. There's a very decided admission by Jewish people that uh, the prophets were no longer coming to Israel, that the prophetic voice had ceased. Now, I'm bringing that up because once the prophetic voice ceases, that means the canon is closed. Because once, once God stops sending authorized messengers to Israel, once God stops writing through them inspired scripture, the canon is closed. Whether, whether you recognize it then or whether it takes another century or two before they finally draw up the list, it's still closed. <clears throat> and 
And the writer of 1 Maccabees is looking back to a time in Israel's history when there was great upheaval in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So he's really thinking about the times when Nehemiah was around. That's the, that's the time that he's uh, pointing to, the time that the prophets ceased to appear. Another text in 1 Maccabees, this one a little earlier in that text. <clears throat> you may recall, if you've read anything about Hellenistic history and about Antiochus Epiphanes in particular, you may know that the, the, uh, the Greek forces uh, under Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the altar that stood in the temple. <clears throat> the, the altar that's outside of the that's in the temple complex outside of the sanctuary where you come to offer sacrifices. And uh, rather than trying to rebuild the altar as they had, as they had, had it, First uh, Maccabees chapter 4 says they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. So again, I'm pointing to another text that in which Jewish sources are, are calling attention to the fact that the prophetic voice has ceased. Now, the prophets before the exile had pointed to that. When you think about Ezekiel, for instance, and you watch the glory of the Lord depart from the temple, uh, uh, that is a very decided uh, uh, warning of judgment that comes through when the Babylonians finally come in. So there is a... Uh, uh, there is a decided uh, admission by Jewish sources that uh, the prophetic voice had ceased. Just a word on 1 Maccabees, 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees. Uh, those books are among what we call the Old Testament Apocrypha, which we will talk about next week. There's a group of about 14 books that you will find in the middle between the, te- between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then if you bought a Bible like a New Revised Standard Version or a New Jerusalem Bible or something like that, that you would find in the middle between those two. But I'm going to deal with those later. But uh, First and Second Maccabees are among those books. And uh, those are important books for the history of Israel between the Testaments. But uh, they were never recognized as Scripture by the Jewish people. They were written by Jewish people for Jewish people in Greek, but they were never considered by Jewish people to be scripture. They were simply a, a, a historical record. So we read these books to find out what's going on in the, in the Greek period of history, the times of the Gentiles there. So, uh, so the books of Maccabees tell us the prophetic voices cease. Now, to me, that's a very strong argument and a very uh, open admission by Jewish people that that the canon is closed. Now, there's not a list, mind you, but there's this idea that God is no longer inspiring Scripture. Now, of course, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's a different story, but that's for, uh, that's for next week and the week following. But there's another source that we can turn to, and this was, a, this was another thing done, uh, during the time uh, that we call the Hellenistic period, the Hellenistic period, Hellenistic just means Greek. It's a fancy word for Greek. 
And uh, Alexander the Great, of course, conquered the entire known world at the time, So, which meant that if you wanted to get ahead in any of those countries that had been conquered by Greece, conquered by Alexander's forces, you had to learn Greek. Okay, they didn't bother uh, usually translating things for you. You just have to learn Greek. If you've ever seen the, uh, the, the comedy movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, Mr. Portocollis, who is the patriarch of the, of the family in the, in the film, says, there's two kinds of people. There's people who are Greek and everyone else who wish they was Greek. Okay, so I, I imagine you could, pro- you know, any any ethnic group would say that. You know, J- Jews are probably saying the same thing. There's there's two kinds of people. There's Jews, and then there's everyone else. You know, uh, but <clears throat> this is the way the Greeks see the world: is there's two kinds of people. There's Greeks and everyone else who needs to learn Greek. Uh, and so I say, Amen. Uh, you know, I, l- I like to joke that my uh, my life verse is Acts twenty one thirty seven. Uh, the, the Kiliarch, the commander of the garrison at the Atonian Fortress, says to Paul, do you know Greek? So that's my life verse. <laughs> do you know Greek? Uh, well, of course, during that time period, uh, there were Jews all over the world. They'd been scattered by the exile to begin with. Lots of them didn't come back when the exile was over. And <clears throat> lots of them stayed where they were. And there were sizable Jewish communities in Egypt, in Babylon, and other places. And, of course, you can still see that in, in Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, if you ever noticed what his, his M.O. is, when he gets there, he always finds the synagogue or he finds a group of people. If there's not a if the town isn't big enough to have a synagogue, he finds a, a, a gathering where people are and starts preaching the gospel to them because they're pre-evangelized by the... By, uh, by being Jewish, they've read the, the Old Testament. They know about Messianic expectation and all those kinds of things. So there were people spread all throughout the, the Hellenistic world who, uh, for whatever reason, needed a translation of the scriptures into Greek. And that uh, translation was started under, uh, under a Greek king of Egypt by the name of Ptolemy Philadelphus in around 250 B.C., 245 if you want to be more precise. You've heard of people who are King James only. I like I like to joke that I'm King Ptolemy only. You know, I mean, so even if you major in the Old Testament, you still have to know Greek. Uh, what can we say? You still have to know Greek to study the Old Testament because of this translation. Now, this translation was started in 250 B.C. Okay, so we're talking 3rd century B.C. here. And that translation, we don't exactly know how long it took for that translation to take place. Well, we know that they started with the Torah, but, uh, but the, the rest of that process is sort of shrouded in the midst of history. It's just lost to us. But we know that uh, <clears throat> by about 100 years later, we're finding copies uh, or fragments of copies of just about every book from the Old Testament in Greek. Uh, and so uh, this translation, uh, because it was said to have been started by 70 or 72 uh, scholars, uh, Hebrew scholars who also knew Greek. Uh, it's called the Septuagint because the Latin for 70 is Septuaginta. And you will often see the Roman numeral abbreviation for this, LXX. L is 50, X is 10, so L50 20 plus 20, 70, so LXX. 
If you see that abbreviation somewhere in something you pick up, that's just talking about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, now, that translation became the Bible of the Greek-speaking church. So when the authors of the New Testament quote from the Old Testament, most of them quote from the Greek version, the Septuagint. And, and there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just like those of us who know Greek, when we preach or teach, we don't quote from the Greek text because only a few people would be able to understand it. And, and even some of those I wonder about. <laughs> uh, just giving you a hard time. Uh, <clears throat> but so so we use translations when we're when we're people who know Greek use translations when they quote from the from the New Testament when we preach or teach just for convenience sake. So you know nothing's changed. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but this the Septuagint the fact that it's translated and the fact that the copies that we have of it have the same books. Essentially, I'll, I'll go into a few of the ones that are disputed a little bit later. Uh, the same, basically, the same books that we find in the Old Testament that we have are the ones that we find in the Septuagint. Uh, is also very strong uh, evidence, and you know, again, it's evidence. But here's the interpretation of the evidence that the canon of Scripture is closed. Otherwise, they would have included other books. Right, so I mean, you know, we want a translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so here's the Hebrew scriptures. Here's the books. Okay, and and there, there basically isn't much dispute over the contents of those books. So the Septuagint is another source of information about the canon of the Old Testament. Now, there's another book that is uh, part of those 14 books. Between the Testaments that are are in your Bible, if you bought the NRSV, the, the so-called NRSV with Apocrypha, that's what that's called. And I'll tell you, I'll I'll talk about what that word means uh, next week. So you got to you got to keep you coming back to listen to advertisement for next week. Um, but one of those books is called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Okay, different different book. And uh, it was written by a guy named uh, uh, Joshua ben Sirach, or Sirach. So some, sometimes it will be called Wisdom, sometimes it's called Sirach, sometimes it's called the Wisdom of Sirach, and sometimes it's called Ecclesiasticus. Go figure. Um, it was originally written in Hebrew, but translated into Greek. Now, the reason that's important, it comes from about 132 B.C., and the, and the precision of that date is because the translator himself tells us when when it was written. And it's the prologue to this document in which the the guy who translated it into Greek is apologizing to his readers, basically, for having to translate it for them. You know, it's difficult to translate things and it's hard to, you know, it's hard really to express the, the thoughts of, of one language in the in the words of another. And it's this, this piece that's in the 2nd century B.C. that also witnesses to this division of the, of the Torah, the Tanakh, as, uh, as we know it, uh, like this. So let me read you little bits of it here. He says, uh, many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them, and for these we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. Now, those who read the scriptures 
must not only themselves understand them, but also as lovers of learning be able through the spoken and written word to help the outsiders. So basically what this guy is saying is, what my grandfather wrote is not scripture, but it'll help you if you want to read scripture. So he goes on, he says, so my grandfather Jesus, now this isn't, look, this is second century BC, so it can't be the Jesus that you know, right? Okay. Jesus is a common name uh, uh, in Israel from Joshua forward. So when you see the word the name Jesus somewhere, sometimes it's Joshua, right? So Jesus ben Sirach or Joshua ben Sirach or Yeshua ben Sirach, depending on how you pronounce things. So he says, my grandfather Jesus, who had devoted himself especially to reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of our ancestors, Ancestors is key there. It's it's a long-standing tradition, and had acquired considerable proficiency in them. Was was himself also led to write something pertaining to instruction and wisdom. And so then he goes on to say uh, how sorry he is that 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 translating was necessary. But but uh, bear with me. I've tried to express what my grandfather said as as closely as I can. So. Ecclesiasticus or Sirach is another book that we have in Greek. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any Hebrew copies of that. That would be interesting to see. Uh, we have pieces of it. We don't have any complete copies. Um, it would be interesting to see uh, what his translation technique was. So we have the, the, uh, the prologue to Ecclesiasticus or prologue to Sirach, as it's called, from the 2nd century B.C. that also talks about the law, the prophets, and the other books. Now, there's another guy uh, that I want to bring up, and he's, a, he's another testimonial to the, the extent of the Old Testament canon. His name is Josephus, uh, Flavius Josephus, you may know him as. This guy, um, this is probably not a photograph of him. There's uh, a later statue that said, somebody said, that's Josephus, and everyone said, oh, yeah, that's Josephus, whatever. Um, <coughs> it's amazing what you can find on the Internet. Uh, anyway, I don't know if that's what he looked like or not, but uh, just to give you something to look at while I introduce you to him. <laughs> Flavius Josephus was the commander of the Jewish garrison in Galilee during the war that ended in 70 A.D. with the destruction of, of Jerusalem and then in 73 with the destruction of Masada. <clears throat> and uh, his garrison was overrun by the Romans, and he was captured and imprisoned in Rome. And by a very strange set of circumstances, uh, gained his freedom and the patronage of the emperor himself. Very strange indeed. Uh, Somewhat of a Jewish uh, Benedict Arnold, if you will. Uh, But we're forever indebted to him because he wrote an extensive series of, of works that have been preserved for us in Greek. And he's, he's a man, he's a Jewish person writing in Greek in the first century A.D. Okay, so, so in terms of just sources for that period of time, it's golden. So he, he, uh, he spends a lot of his time really trying to defend Judaism to the outside world so the Romans can understand what Judaism is and, and why they did what they did and what led up to the war uh, of 70 A.D. And so in his book uh, titled Against Appian, 
Now, uh, just a further bit of information uh, background here. Appian is a is a is the name of a of a Greek writer who wrote really horrible things about uh, about the Jews, and Josephus is answering his his charges. And so Josephus, in this one particular passage in against Appian, also gives us more some information about the extent of the Old Testament. He says this, and th- this very much lines up with what <coughs> God said in the second century B.C. in uh, in First Maccabees. He says, <clears throat> because everyone is not permitted of his own accord to be a writer, nor is there any disagreement in what is written. They being only prophets that have written the original and earliest accounts as they learned them of God himself by inspiration. So he's talking about the Old Testament here. And he's saying that the, uh, the Old Testament writers wrote under the inspiration of God. And he says, and others have written what have happened in their own times. And that in a very distinct manner also. For we meaning the Jews, have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing and contradicting one another the way the Greeks do, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times and are justly believed to be divine. The first five of them belong to Moses. And he goes on a little bit here. And a little bit further on in this passage, he says, from the time of Moses till the death of, uh, sorry, from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, now, Artaxerxes is the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. So we're talking about from Moses to the Persian period. Okay? From about 1400 B.C. to about 400 B.C. So this is the, this is the time period that, that uh, even Josephus himself is putting on this. He goes on to say this. It is true, our history has been written since Artaxerxes, very particularly, but has not been esteemed of like authority. So the very clear sense, even from Josephus, that what we're dealing with is stuff that was written after the Persian period is not considered canonical or inspired. Very important thing. And we're talking about someone writing in the first century A.D. Uh, Another man we can point to is Philo. Now, Philo was a contemporary of Jesus. You can see from from his dates, 20 B.C., to A.D. 50. Okay, so he died very shortly after the reign of Claudius, for instance. Now, um, Philo is very, uh, <clears throat> a, a very interesting uh, Jewish apologist. He's very uh, philosophical in his outlook, very much bought into the Greek mindset in many ways. He, he'd, he'd almost have you believe that Aristotle and Plato and people like that learned all their best stuff from Moses. Basically, that they had that they had read the law and all that great stuff that came out of first century BC Athens was really inspired by, by them having read Moses. Uh, so in some ways, Philo is rather entertaining, but uh, more importantly, uh, <clears throat> he quotes from just about every Old Testament book that we have. So he's a an, he's another piece of information. He's another testimony of someone writing. In the, in the late 1st century B.C. and the early 1st century A.D. about the fact that there's a canon of Scripture, that there's a, there's a fixed collection of, of Jewish writings that's considered authoritative. So Josephus and Philo, actual writers from the 1st from the century A.D., actual Jewish writers writing in Greek, 
uh, <coughs> that, that's, uh, they're worth their weight in gold. There's also some archaeological evidence, uh, also literary remains, in the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. I took this picture. Uh, this, is, this is Cave 4 of uh, the, the so-called Qumran uh, <coughs> uh, community. There's a, there's a kind of network of caves near the Dead Sea uh, <coughs> in Israel, and you can visit. The, you can visit them. This this one's easy to take a picture of because you can stand right there and look, kind of look down onto it. So this is the picture you always see. Uh, uh, but there's a, a whole bunch of other caves like this. This is Cave Four. Cave One is is somewhere a little bit harder to get to. And the story goes that a, a, a shepherd boy threw a threw a rock into a, a, a cave opening. Uh, to scare a goat or whatever he was shepherding out and instead heard shattering pottery and said, hmm, that didn't sound like a goat. He went up there and he, he found a cache of, of, of scrolls, papyrus scrolls with, with Hebrew and Greek on them, and that was the beginning of a series of discoveries. And so one particular document out of the thousands that have been found there, this is just, this is just one representative example is uh, a document called 4QMMT. It's called 4Q because it came from Cave 4 at Qumran, Q for Qumran. And uh, that particular document, among many others, mentions Moses, the prophet, and David. Remember, David is the one who is, is credited with having written most of the Psalms. So a lot of people read this statement and say, and I think rightly so, that the Psalms are represented by the word David and, uh, and perhaps even the entire collection of writings, the Psalms being the most important book of that collection. There have been both canonical and non-canonical works found there. The Qumran community spent their time copying Old Testament scriptures in, in Greek and Hebrew and uh, also copying some other uh, religious writings of their own and uh, those, those particular writings show that these guys were not, uh, shall we say, mainstream when it came to uh, their beliefs. So that, uh, it's a very interesting source for information about um, uh, what some people thought. We have, these guys thought that the Pharisees had gone liberal, basically. So, uh, um <coughs> Uh, but we won't spend our time talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but, it, uh, but the entire Old Testament canon is represented there except for the book of Esther and the book of Song of Songs. And I, I'm not surprised that Song of Songs isn't there because uh, this is supposedly uh, was a monastic community, and if they'd been reading Song of Songs, they would have all gone and gotten married, uh, and uh, then there wouldn't have been a community there. So uh, anyway... <laughs> We can just put it that way, thanks. Uh, <coughs> um, but now, now I'm dealing mostly with first century uh, 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 figures and people. Let's turn to Jesus himself. Jesus uh, says this, and uh, this, is, this is a statement said in passing in relation to something else, but it's something that tells us uh, about the boundaries of the Old Testament collection again. He says, all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Okay, so let me unpack that for a second. Abel, of course, you know, 
was killed by his brother Cain, the first murder in history, and that occurs in Genesis. Okay, now this uh, Zechariah is a different prophet, not the author of the uh, of the book Zechariah, but a different Zechariah, son of Berechiah, murdered between the temple and the altar. And this event mentioned at the tail end of Matthew twenty three thirty five happens in Second Chronicles. So it's like Jesus talking about from Genesis to Second Chronicles. So that tells us a lot about the extent of the canon. It doesn't tell you specific books, but it tells you that there is a group of books that Jesus considers uh, to be uh, canonical, if you will. And that all things, uh, this is Luke 24, uh, 44. The scene is the road to Emmaus after his uh, resurrection. He's, He's on the road and these two disciples are listening to him. They don't know who he is yet. He says that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Sounds a whole lot like 4QMMT, doesn't it? Uh, where we find the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, and so we point to Jesus, and there's again this, this threefold division of the Old Testament Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, he says Psalms, but Psalms can stand for the entire collection. I think just the way the, the name David can stand for the whole collection of Psalms, if you will. Okay, we can even point to, to things on into the second century. You remember I told you that in the second century, in, or in the, in the first century, uh, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Well, <clears throat> after the destruction of the temple, in the, uh, the mid-70s or so, the center of, of Judaism moved to Galilee, a place that came to be known as uh, uh, Jamnia, a, a city. And depending on which Bible dictionary you read or which place you look this up, the, the city Jamnia can be, uh, can be called by different names, Yamnia, Yavne, Yavne, uh, or Yavnil if you want to put the Old Testament name on it. Either way, we're talking about a place in Galilee, uh, very close to uh, the ancient uh, Gentile city of Sepphoris. This is why I've got this picture of the mosaic there. This mosaic came from a, from a, from a dining hall in, uh, in a Gentile city called Sepphoris, very close to, close to the site of Jamnia. Now, um, a lot of people will talk about the so-called Council of Jamnia or the Council of Yavne uh, as though it were this uh, sort of uh, scholarly conference that took place and they kind of voted in what was in the canon and what wasn't. But really, truth be known, this is a series of discussions that took place uh, from the 70s A.D. on into the, uh, on into the second century especially with the destruction uh, of the, the complete destruction of Jerusalem uh, after the Bar Kokhba revolt. And then finally, the codification of uh, uh, the writing down of a, an oral commentary that had been going on for a long time on various subjects. And that commentary is called the Mishnah. Have you heard of that? Mishnah uh, is the term that's used of uh, a a long-running commentary 
on the books uh, on the books of the canon of scripture. And basically, in the Mishnah, they're they're kind of wondering, you know, what what does it mean to be Jewish, and and how do we make sure we keep these laws, and and what constitutes cleanness and uncleanness, and how do you know whether you've broken the Sabbath, and you know what thirty nine things can you can or not do on the Sabbath, and so on. A lot of the things that you hear people talking about uh, when they say Jews in Jesus' day used to believe, a lot of that uh, information is coming in somewhere or another from the Mishnah, which is actually coming from the second century. Um, but I, but uh, it's pretty safe to say that the, that what we find in the Mishnah, even though it's written down in the second century A.D., it preserves traditions that go well back into the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. in in many cases. Well, I can point to one particular um, passage in the Mishnah. It's called Mishnah Yadayim. Yadayim is the word for hands. And in particular, uh, this thing about uncleanness of hands. Now, uh, (coughs) I've only got a few minutes left to tell you about what uncleanness of hands is. Okay. Could I just say, Prince Humperdinck is marrying Buttercup in a little less than half an hour? Um, uh, okay, let, let, me, let me try a shot at this. Uh, you didn't recognize the reference to Princess Bride, I guess. Uh, but uh, there's no time. Let me sum up. Okay, now allow me to go a little bit longer here for a second. Unclean as hands means <clears throat> basically this. Uh, when it comes to talking about scriptures and talking about handling the scriptures, what, what the people who wrote the mission are concerned with is that you don't just go from handling the scriptures to everyday life without thinking about what you're doing. Okay, That is, to keep the scriptures from becoming common or everyday or somehow uh, n- uh, not holy. Are you with me here? And so what they decided was, once you've handled the scriptures, you've got to wash your hands before you go to the rest of life. And in so doing, you're preserving, as it were, the holiness of scriptures to keep them from becoming ordinary. You with me here? Okay. Kind of works in reverse, you know. You're not supposed to use the the fine china to entertain your friends who come over for the football game because your wife will kill you. Right? Okay. So that, that's sort of what holiness is. is. Okay. So now here's, here was this, the discussion in Yadayim 3.5. He says, now, you have to understand, the Mishnah is a conversation that's been going on a couple of hundred years. And you get dropped in, you start reading the Mishnah, and you get dropped into this conversation, and no one, no one in the conversation is going to explain what's going on to you. You just get dropped into this, and they, they're talking about it. So let me try to explain it as we go through it. He says, they, they say this, All sacred scriptures impart uncleanness to the hands. The Song of Songs and Kohelet impart uncleanness to hands. Now, you know what the Song of Songs is. Kohelet is the Hebrew word for preacher, uh, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. Very good. So the Song of Songs and Kohelet impart uncleanness to hands. That's their ruling. That is, they're part of the canon. <clears throat> and now here comes the discussion. Rabbi Judah says, the Song of Songs imparts uncleanness to hands, but as to Kohelet, there is dispute. 
Rabbi Yosef says, mm-hmm. Kohelet does not impart uncleanness to hands, but as to Song of, Song, Song of Songs, there is dispute. So basically, he's setting it up and saying, okay, you know, there's dispute over these, but if you take one, you'll probably take, you know, if you don't take one, you'll probably take the other. So uh, among rabbis, these are the scholars who are discussing this. Uh, here's here's a, a sequence of, of opinions. But then Rabbi Akiba comes along. says, said Rabbi Akiba, heaven forbid, no Israelite man ever disputed concerning Song of, Sol- uh, Song of Songs that it imparts uncleanness to hands. He says, oh, no way. There's never been any dispute as to whether this is part of the canon. If you read Song of Songs, it's the same thing as reading Isaiah or the Torah. It imparts uncleanness to hands. For the, and then he goes on to say this. You know, not only not only was there never any doubt, he says, for the entire age is not so worthy as the day on which Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is holiest of all. And if they disputed, they disputed only concerning Kohelet. Said Rabbi ben, uh, Yohanan uh, <coughs> ben Yoshua, the son of Rabbi Akiba's father-in-law. Uh, it's in the family somewhere. One of his relatives... <clears throat> said, indeed, did they dispute, and indeed, they did come to a decision. So the, the, the end of the discussion on, on this, at this passage in the Mishnah is, yeah, there was some discussion of this, but they came to a decision. Both Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes impart uncleanness to the hands, which means they're part of the canon. So, and they had decided that long before this was written down. Okay, we're, we're talking about traditions that go back a century or two at least before that. So we have documentary evidence putting the Old Testament canon as fixed at least by the second century B.C. But it has to go back further than that. And there is this, there's hint everywhere you look that Israel had long since considered the canon closed at the end of Nehemiah's day. Well, there were some other, uh, some other books they discussed as being uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, difficult to accept. There are some passages in Ezekiel and Proverbs uh, that are difficult to reconcile, and so there was some, some discussion over those. The only one really that, that, uh, that got some serious discussion as to whether it should be involved or uh, belong to the canon was the book of Esther. Now, you know the book of Esther is about a, 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 a Jewish uh, woman who married a Persian king and uh, used her position uh, to rescue the Jews from annihilation in the Persian uh, Empire. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. And the book of Esther mention, or, or esta- mentions or establishes or talks about a feast called Purim, which means lots talking about the day on, on which the lot fell to destroy the Jews. This uh, feast called Purim, which is still um, uh, still celebrated today. And so uh, the fact that Purim is not one of the biblical feasts gave some pause to those who were thinking about what should be included in the canon or not. But in the end, uh, Esther is uh, <coughs> accepted as well by the rabbinic authorities who wrote the Mishnah. 
so uh, in terms of books that are part of our Old Testament canon, there was really never any serious debate as to whether a book should be included or not. The debate was over certain passages within these books that were hard to accept. So the next time you turn on the TV and they say there's no list of books of the Old Testament canon, you can say, well, yeah, what other lists do you find? There aren't any lists because they didn't need them uh, <clears throat> because in Israel everyone knew what the canon was. It was only afterwards, after the destruction of the temple and after the Jewish people are trying to maintain their identity, that they have to start actually making lists. And this will take us into, uh, into next week when we start talking about these other books that were written during the Hellenistic period that some people in the Christian church thought should be included in the canon. So this is why it really falls under the idea of the, of the New Testament canon. So there's really a, a, an overlap between Old Testament and New Testament here in this. So let me, let me leave you with this thought, that, that God superintended the events of history so that, that the canon was recognized as closed, even though specific lists of books weren't drawn up until people outside Israel needed them. And so that's where I'll leave you tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, how grateful we are that uh, you have seen fit to preserve for us your word, and that uh, we can know uh, which books we should read because they have been authorized by you, confirmed uh, by Jesus and the apostles and prophets in the New Testament period. We ask that uh, as we go our way, that you would uh, enable us to stand firm against attacks on your word and to uh, even help our friends and uh, family who have been cause to wonder or doubt or question whether uh, their Bible is trustworthy. We ask that you will enable us by your spirit to carry this message, for we ask in Jesus' name.